you would please open up your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, you know, as we finish my favorite book today, because we are going to try to go through the remaining of the verses here. We're going to take where we pick right back up where we left off last week. We will finish 1 Peter chapter 5, and we'll take verses 5 through 14. And uh, there's a lot in these verses, I know. I know, you're like, oh, he's going to get through all these. Maybe, yeah, we will. We, you know, two hours from now, we'll be done. But, we, but where else are we going to do it? It's, 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 it's settling in. Yeah, I'm joking for those who are new. Yeah. Yes. You know, as Peter writes this letter to believers, to you and I, as the Holy Spirit moves, as Peter closes out his letter. He knew that a fiery trial was about to hit them, like a, like a truck's hitting them. Because of their belief in Jesus Christ, the enemy's going to come after them in so many forms and fashions and ways to destroy and to hurt and to kill and destroy. We see these things in the scripture. We'll talk about them more in detail here. But he knew that these believers were going to hit the fiery trial and it was all about to hit and he loved them so dearly. He wrote this letter as the power of the Holy Spirit gave him the words. He wanted the entire church family to be prepared for this fiery trial that was coming their way. Peter, in the closing letter here, gave the church three important warnings, exhortations, admonitions to obey what he is about to tell them. These were not just words to hear, but these are words to do. These are to apply it to the lives because he knew if you did not apply these to life, when the trials and the persecutions and the difficulties of life come, and they will come, it's not a question if, it's only when and how hard and how in intensified that will be. But when they do come, as a pastor, he says, I need you to be prepared as a children of God, prepared as a church family, because they will be coming. And so when he sits there, he says, admonishes them, and he says, please, warnings, obey, alert, alert. If you will do these things, then you will glorify God in these difficult experiences that you'll be going through in life. Peter already, in his letter, admonished the believers to be submissive. To be submissive to the government authorities we saw in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. He also said it's important for you to, as a Christian, to be submissive as a slave or employee, we would say, to be submissive to their masters or their owners, the, the bosses that are over them in their line of work. We saw that in verses 18 through 25 of chapter 2. Then we saw that wives were to be submissive to their own husbands. We saw that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now we, he com, uh, commanded all the believers, all of the believers, to submit to God and to each other. There's always a submission, a humbleness we will see as he starts the, and ends, well, starts today in our verses of verse 5, but the ending of the, of the letter here of 1 Peter, he says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. 
Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Why? For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we start off by a promise of what would happen if you would be humble. We must be humble. That's the first exhortation, the admonition, the, 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 the command to you and to I today. We must be humble. We must make that decision to be humble. And it is a decision on your part to be humble. Many people say if you're not humble, you'll be humbled. But we must choose to be humble. Because that it was God is what is called as a character of a godly person. Is to be a humbled person. Peter reminds us that we're all called to humility. It's not just one person or another. But it's all of us are to be humble. But he starts here in this part of the letter here for us this morning is that Peter began the word of humility to the younger people. In contrast to who? The elders, the elders that he just got done writing about in the very first part of chapter 5. He says that the younger people didn't to be humbled or submissive to the elders. But he emphasizes that it is to be applied to all of you as well. So it's like he says, for you, and maybe they had a struggle within the church. Maybe there was some tension between the younger population and the older population within the church. And how things should run or how things should go and what they should prioritize and how things should play out and, and who is in charge and these things. These are things that are normal and challenging between human relations. Nothing different between an employer and employee, between a husband and a wife, between the children and the, and the, and the parents. There's always struggles with, with these relationships when you're not humble in the position and role that you're playing at that time because your roles and positions change. And we always need to remember, just stay humble. You can be humbled even if you're in charge of thousands upon thousands. Be humble. Or if you're just starting life and you have no responsibility and you can't even handle yourself, be humble. But Peter's saying to them, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. It's a covering. It's, a, it's when people see you, they see this humbleness within your life. It's not something that they have to go, let's just spend some time trying to figure out if this is a humbled man or a humbled woman. No, they see you clothed with it. They look at your life and they see you and they know you're humble. And the words you speak, the reactions you give, or maybe what you don't do. <laughs> Sometimes humbleness is how you don't respond. As we've learned in James, we must be you know, quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to wrath. The younger believers should submit to the older believers. Not only out of respect for their elders, but also out of respect for their spiritual maturity that many times comes with age of walking with the Lord longer. Yes, not every senior saint is a mature saint or a mature Christian. Not everyone, just because they have beautiful gray hair. But because of the years is no guarantee for the quality of their experience. 
Many call themselves a Christian, but never really understood the word of God and walked as a Christian, applying it to their lives. The solution to keep the unity in the church of all ages is twofold. All believers, young or older, should submit to each other. Do you want to keep unity and love among the brethren and sisters? Just learn to be submissive to one another, regardless of who you are. We also, the second is that we all should submit to God. We should all be wanting to be clothed in humility. Because if you're not clothed, you'll be just like Adam and Eve when they sin and, 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 and they were hidden, they hide because they were ashamed of their nakedness. That's what happens when a proud person and is displayed. You're, ash you're just become a shameful thing. Some people are told you need to be proud, you need to be strong, and you're, that is completely against, as a Christian, as a child of God, completely against the nature of what he wants you to do. You can have, it's not weakness, it's a meekness, it's a quiet strength. And you've heard me say it many times, we want to become that, that thoroughbred, that horse that has so much horsepower, so much power. But it so beautifully just stands there until it needs to turn on that power. That's what it should be like for us. Because that clothed with humility is a demonstration of submission. It's the ability to cheerfully put away your own agenda for God's agenda. Even if God's agenda is expressed through another person, and God is using another person to express something of God's will, we must be submissive. Yes, all of us must determine to seek to serve others. That's a choice you must make. I choose today to serve you, God, and serve others. The phrase here, be clothed, in the, the, the language translate is a very rare word that we see in the scripture. It refers to the slave putting on the apron before serving. And that is demonstrating that same word there in John 13, 4, when Jesus put on that apron to sit down and to wash the disciples' feet. It's the same word. So each of us should have a servant's attitude and a minister to each other. The true humility to be described is so important. Go back to Ephesians, or Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. You want to hear or see a great definition of humility and humbleness in these things? Go read those first 11 verses. Because humility is not demeaning ourselves. That's not what it means to be humble, to demean yourself and to cower away and, and to somehow think poorly of ourselves. Oh, you know me. I'm just humbled in the Lord, you know. And you've got this, this, this almost a, a reverse pious kind of religiosity about yourself. That's not what God is talking about here. It's simply not thinking of ourselves at all. That's what humility is. Just simply dying of self. Because it's so easy to think of ourselves constantly. What we want, how we want it, when we want it. And if no one lines up with what we want, we come unglued. That is not a humbled person. That is not a self-controlled person. 
And that's what Peter is saying to them. That we can never be submissive to each other until we are first submissive to God. You must first start with your relationship with God. And once you're submissive to God, then you will learn through these trials and tribulations to learn how to submit to one another. And that's where relationships um, flourish. Even Peter quoted here in Proverbs 3, verses 34, to support his whole point about, even it's also quoted as we studied in James chapter 4, verse 6, that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you know God will resist you if you're not humbled? Why am I not getting this? Why am I not getting this? I'm going to put more forces. I'm going to manipulate and force and I'm going to get my way. And you just, you're just striving to get what you want because you believe what you want is always right. And you get resistance because you're going against the will of God. You're not being humbled about it and allowing as a child of God to your father to be in control. So when God says, I want you to go right, and you don't, I don't want to go right. Well, then you're asking God to resist you. I don't know about you, but I don't want God to resist me. Do you? Do you want God to go against you or for you? But he says right here, God resists the proud. So if, if pride is in your life, and that's what's causing your turmoil in your life, in all your relationships because of your pride, you're being resisting what God wants to do in your life. You must change. God says we must change. Because it's essential. Humility is essential in all of our relationships that we have. Especially with the ones closest to us. It takes grace to submit to another believer. But God can give that grace if we humble ourselves before him. How does God resist the proud? Or why would God resist the proud? It's because God hates pride. Why does he hate pride? Proverbs 6, verses 16 and 17. Verses, chapter 8, verse 13. Go back and read those today. You will quickly find out why God hates pride. It was pride that turned Lucifer into Satan. We see that in Isaiah 14. That's what brought down Lucifer, the worship leader in heaven, was pride. We see that pride, a desire to be like God and to be in control like God, moves, moved Eve to take the forbidden fruit. It was her pride that made her reach out and take and eat of the fruit that God said, do not eat. We see that the pride of life is the evidence of worldliness, 1 John 2.16. What makes someone worldly and not godly? Pride. The pride of life. The only antidote or only, the only cure to your pride issue and my pride issue is the, the grace of God. We receive that grace when we yield ourselves to his will. That's why we start with just submission to God. And then we're pliable, we're mendable. The potter can grab a hold of you and mold and shape your life into something so beautiful. 
if you would just yield to the loving hands of our God. See, grace and pride are eternal enemies because pride demands that God bless me in the right in the right way the right this and I mean just I want what it is I God bless me now in light of what all I desire and think I want what I want you demand God to give you what you want it's a pride issue Grace deals with me on the basis of what is in God, not on the basis of anything in me. And it's the two things that need to be worked through in regards to pride and grace. Pride is the one of the most desire, or detestable but desirable things in people's lives, but it's sinful. But it's detestable to God. It's an abomination that we see in the scripture. Yet we call it, like many other things in the world today, it's not sin, it's a disease. It's not sin, it's an addiction. It's not sin, it's this. Well, pride's the same way. I don't have pride. I'm an independent person. I know. Or... I am self-reliant, so I don't need anybody. I am totally fine. I can handle it on my own. I know. Or even better, self-sufficient. Do you need anything? I don't need anything from anybody. I got everything I want. I, who needs anybody? Oh, okay. See, these are the things we just camouflage of the root of the issue. And the issue is pride. God says, just humble yourself. You have to know that you can accomplish nothing of any value apart from me. So start with that. First recognize that I'm in control. I'm the creator of the heavens and the earth. Can we at least start with that part? And if I'm the creator of all things and I sustain your life, I allow your brain to work, your heart to work, your lungs to work. You, those, you call them involuntary muscles, but because they are, I'm in control of those. And when I determine the day to shut them off on you, I can turn them off just like that. Because I started it just like that. See, once you submit yourself to God, then you need to submit in all the other relationships around you and recognize how God works. That's where he says here, therefore, verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. See, here's the, the blessing. See the promise? See the promise that comes from this? We live by promises, don't we, as a child of God. We, God promises this. I'm going to hold to it because it's in his word. I'm going to hold on to this. He, he's never going to fail me. He's never going to leave me. He's always a truth. He's never lies. He can't, he can't turn away from his promises. He says, if I will humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, what will he do for us? And his righteous hand will lift you up. He will exalt you in due time. But the key, notice these key words here, though. Submission is an act of faith. You're taking a step of faith. You haven't seen that worked out yet. So you need to take a step of faith because of your relationship, because you trust God. You know who he is. You know his character. You're not willing to trust and put your faith in anybody. Until you actually get to know them. 
Because you're always weary about, can you trust them? Do you think that's not any different than what God is? People don't give their life to God until there's something or someone says something that touches their heart to go, yes, I will believe, I will trust God. But it takes faith. And it takes faith to submit. So we're trusting God to direct our lives and to work out his purposes in his timing, not our timing. That's where we struggle. Because <laughs> we want it done today. And God says, oh, no, no, no. We're going to let you marinate for a little while before I lift you up and bless you in that way. You can't handle that blessing or handle me glorifying you in that way. You would, it would just be so private, it would destroy you. See, he's going to exalt you in due time. God has us in a humble place at a present time. And we must submit to God's plan, not our own plan. And he knows the due time to exalt us, though we often think we know what's the best timing. We know the better way of God's, better than what God does. But remember, my brothers and sisters, God is perfect. His time is always, what? Perfect. Regardless of how you feel. See, God never exalts anyone until that person is ready for it. It's always first the cross, then the crown. It's always first you must go through the suffering, then the glory comes. And it's always in that order. Even though we just, can't we just be glorified and not go through suffering? That's our flesh. Why would we want to do? But if once you understand God brings you through the trials and tribulations and persecutions in all forms and sizes, he's just using that to prepare you to what? To glorify. To glorify him through, the, through your life. See, Moses was under God's hand for 40 years as a shepherd in the back, <laughs> 40, taking care of the sheep of his father-in-law for 40 years. He went from being the, the powerful next in throne in Egypt to be a shepherd in the back shepherd, uh, uh, wilderness taking care of sheep. For 40 years, God had to keep him there to prepare him to what? To glorify him by bringing him up to be the leader and usher God's people, the entire nation of Israel, out of Egypt to the promised land. 40 years. Look at Joseph. He had to go become from a shepherd to be a slave, to thrown into jail and, and become... <laughs> but... It took 13 years of God working him through all of those trials and tribulations and sufferings to become the what? The second most powerful in the throne of Egypt. I keep it even simpler even today. Oh, how many times an employee will walk in and say, your rank is low, your position's low, and you think you already should be the CEO or the commander. Humble yourself. Learn, grow, let God do a work. Let him exalt you and take you up into the position of what he wants you to do to be most effective. Let him know what's best for you. One of the evidence of our pride 
if you have pride or not, is our impatience with God. One reason for suffering is that we, he, we might learn to patience. We learned that in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, that God brings trials and tribulations to help us to be, build our patience and be patient with God and to trust God in these things. That's what the, where you become more submissive and more humbled in your, in your life. Here, Peter was referring to what he heard Jesus say in Luke 14, 11, when he says, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's so contrary to the world. The world says you just be so prideful and go get it and just move whatever, whoever you need to, and the, the weakest get out of the way, and I'm stronger, and, and I'm going to make it to the top. And do whatever it takes. That's not how it works, my brothers and sisters. See, one of the blessings or the benefits of this kind of relationship with God is the privilege of letting him take care of your, your burdens. Look at verse 7. Casting all your care upon him. For why? He cares for you. He cares for you. The word here, casting all. Casting all means you're going to cast all your past, present, and future cares. What's the word care? The word in the Greek here is anxiety. Any anxiety, all your past anxieties, all the things that just get, makes you really anxious just pondering on your past, or anything you're going through today, or the things you will go through tomorrow, all of those now cast to him. The word cast is not something you go, let me gently place there. It means like, it's like a hot potato. It's like you just got electrified. You just want to get go, let, let it go. You don't like, uh, you know, it's like something you found in your house and you haven't used it in 30 years. You've been traveling all over and you're like, I don't think we can give that away. I don't know if we want to give that away. I, we, we will use it someday. No, get, just get rid of it. It's had no value. It's just been weighing you down as you travel from place to place and you pack it up and move on to the next house. You go, oh, we're still moving this thing. True humility is shown by our ability to cast our care upon God. It is a proud presumption to take things into our own worry and our own care about things that God has promised to take care of. Let me give you one of my favorite verses. In Matthew 6, verses 31 through 34, I'm actually going to read it and not just reference it here for you today. Therefore, do not worry. Therefore, do not worry. Saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek. That all the non-believers think like that. Not, not God's children. If your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Ah, verse 33. But seek. First the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
See, it's casting and casting. It just keep casting. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an action word we see in the scripture where you cast it out and it has a tendency to roll back. You cast, okay, God, I'm going to cast this to you. I'm not going to worry. I'm going to be anxious about this thing. And then the next couple of days, what happens? It kind of seems like it rolls back on you. It, you just keep casting it back to him every day. Yes, the past, the present, the, even the future. Because you can worry about the future. You do know that. Cast it to him now. That you wouldn't worry and be anxious for these things. Be anxious for nothing, but, but by prayer and supplication, making your requests be known to God, he says. That means you have to have a prayer life. That means you have to be communicating and talking to God on a regular basis throughout the day. The scripture tells us to be praying without ceasing. That's how important prayer is. Unless we meet the conditions laid down there in verse 5 and 6 about being humbled and being submissive and giving things over to God of what's going on in your life, because I do know all of us have those squirrely things in our head that no one else even knows, maybe not even your spouse or your best friend. They just, it's just you going squirrely. You have anxieties over things that maybe no one knows. You need to cast them over to the Lord because he knows all things. He's just waiting for you to cast them to you, to, to him. And he takes them and lifts those anxieties out of your mind, out of your life. If you trust him. But if you truly humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, we will have far fewer cares to cast upon him. And we cannot claim the wonderful promise in verse 7 where you can cast if you're not willing to humbly come to him. Because you're not going to cast to him if you don't believe and trust in him and humbly submit to him. You're not going to cast anything. So what happens in practicality? You don't cast your anxieties over to him. You will build up anxieties and that is where you'll go squirrely on me and everybody around you. And it's just a spiral, takes you in a spiral, and you will go down faster, faster, it'll pick up speed, and you will hit bottom. It's only a matter of time. That's why God says through Peter to us, the Holy Spirit tells us today, cast all your anxiety over to him. Someone says, Pastor, what do you recommend? Dealing with anxiety, or I'm dealing with depression, I'm dealing with this, I'm dealing with that, whatever that dealing may be. Where, who would you call? You do know you're talking to a pastor. And it, I'm not going to say you come to me. I'm going to take you right to Jesus. Because that's where you cast all your cares. That's the great counselor. That's the one who listens 24-7. You don't have to set an appointment. He listens to you 24-7. And guess what? He has the perfect answer of how to deal with it. And he gives it to us in our scriptures today. Humble thyself. Submit to God. Cast all your cares upon him. Don't hold on to him. Don't give a second thought. Give it to him. Now what's interesting. Worries. 
certain worries, certain anxieties that we have should not be cast to God. Did you know that? Worries about covetousness, greed, ambition, popularity, all of that. Do you realize those are sins that have to be dealt with because he dealt with those on the cross? He died for your sins. You need to not even cast those to him. You just say, Lord, thank you for dying for all those sins of mine. See, here's a great illustration. You've asked this man to come over from the church to help you to, we'll call his name Tom. So you call Tom and said, Tom, can you come over and help me move some furniture in my house? But he carried you, as he comes into your house to help you move your furniture, the big heavy furniture, he's got this huge 60-pound rucksack on him. And he's struggling getting through the door. And you're looking at him like, Tom, why are you carrying all that heavy load? You know we're going to carry the furniture. Don't you think you should first put down that backpack so that you can pick up the furniture, Tom, to move, to get out? Yes. That would be wise. It's the same way. We cannot do God's work when we're weighed down by our own burdens and worries. Because when you're just heavy, heavy, heavy laden with burdens and worries of your life, you will not do what God's called you to do. You won't move. You won't be able to handle it. And when you do that, if you haven't been casting over your anxieties, you will stop dropping Right and left, you'll start dropping everything you were doing for God because you can't handle another thing in your life. That is a perfect example of someone who's not humbly submitting to God and humbly casting their, their cares over to God and allowing Him to deal with it. Or they have sin in their life that they're carrying away. They have not repented of and they don't cast it to God. They just come to God and say, God, forgive me. And then they're lightened the load to be able to actually do what God has continued to want to do in, in their life. But they need to cast it upon them. Matthew 11 is another great verse. I love 8, 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That means you're studying the word of God, are you not? Learn from me. For I am gentle and lonely in, in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. See, the Lord's burden, which is light, very light. A yoke that fit, fits perfectly to do what he's called you to do. See, there are many anxieties that cannot just be cast. I'll give you examples. I worry that I will never be rich. That's not a, a, something you should be casting on to God. I want to be rich. I want to be rich. And, I, and your anxiety over not being wealthy. And, or I am burdened or troubled or bothered that others enjoy sinful pleasures and I don't get to do that. 
That's not something you should be casting over God. God, you know I want to do those ungodly pleasures. Everyone else is getting to do it. Why don't I have the liberty to do those things? Because there's sin. It's pretty simple, straightforward. It goes against God's nature. Don't cast that to me. Repent of that. How about, I worried that I am not famous or even popular. No one, I don't have any Facebook likes. There's not a, I don't have enough likes. <laughs> I assure you, the Lord really doesn't matter what you, how many likes you have. The question is his relationship with you and you and him. How about the, I'm burdened, I'm upset that I can't be revengeful on those who have wronged me. Come on, God, please, give me the okay, let me go and get them. They hurt me and I want to hurt them back. And it's causing anxiety. No, no, no. My brothers and sisters, that's not how it works. Repent of that. Don't cast it to God. You've got a sin problem that needs to be dealt with. Repent. See, all the cares of covetousness, anger, and pride, and ambition, and stubbornness, because we don't call it stubborn. I'm not stubborn. I'm just determined. Whatever you want to call it must be cast to the winds. It would be unacceptable to think of casting them upon God. Don't be praying about them. Except that God will redeem you from them by faith in him. He needs to redeem you from those things. This this work of casting is not easy. But you've got two hands. One for prayer and a hand of faith. Prayer tells God what the care is and ask God to help. That's prayer. While faith believes that God can and will do it. And do you have the faith to believe what God's promised? See, for his cares for you, that is the main thing, the main emphasis for you and I, is that we have a God that loves you and cares for you. Do you realize all the religions out there work to try and hope that their God is cares and loves them? That their God and their care would do something for them? But not us. We have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. We automatically know He cares for us. He was a loving Father. He's never going to give you not something that is good. How do we know that in the Scriptures? Well, let me give you a few so for you to ponder on. He gives us the courage to face them and not run away from our anxieties. We see that in Isaiah 41.10. He gives us the wisdom to understand the situation that's causing the anxieties. We see that in James 1.5. He gives us the strength to do what we must do to come overcome these anxieties. We see that in Philippians 4.13. And he gives us the faith to trust him to do the rest. We see that in Psalm 37.5. So Peter continues here and he gives some really practical instructions to these believers who are listening. 
that will result in them to have victory over these anxieties, these things that has weighing them down in their lives, in their minds. He says in verse 8, he says, not only are we to be humbled, but we're to be watchful. We must respect who we're dealing with. We must recognize this is real. He says in verse 8, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. One of the reasons we have cares in our life is because we have an enemy that's coming against us looking to destroy our lives. Do you know that? It's hard to believe that when you look around this time of year and see how many people celebrate the darkness and the evilness all around us. Like it's fun and games. But for you as a believer, this is not fun and games when you're talking about darkness and demonic forces. Because the scripture is very clear that we are to be watchful. We may be humble to stay close to God, cast all your cares, but be watchful because for the devil... You need to be clear-minded. You need to be watchful. That's vigilant. You must be watchful. You must be recognized there is a devil. There is demonic forces out there. Scripture is very clear on that. And they will come in looking to come and devour you, to take you out. Destroy your life and your relationships. Peter exhorts these believers and us to remain very clear-minded, very watchful, because Satan has not been bound he's not restrained for those thousand years that we know will happen eventually we see in uh, revelation chapter 20 verses 1 and 2 but he says here at the present time the devil walks about he moves around this world so you need to respect that satan is real and his demonic forces are real you need to respect the fact that he's all he's very powerful he's not all powerful but he's powerful. He's dangerous. We see in the scripture he's referred to as the serpent. Ask Eve and Adam. He, Satan deceives. That's what it means to be a serpent, to deceive. We see that also referenced in 2 Corinthians 11.3. Not only will he deceive you, but he will bite you. Oh, he wants to come after you. He's not just slithering and, and flipping his little tongue at you. He's looking to figure out how to get close enough to take a bite of you and indwell the poison within you. And when he looks to bite, he's always doing it when you least expect it. That's how it works. I didn't. How did that happen? How, where did that come from? I... I What's going on here? The serpent has been slithering around you. And if you're not watchful, my brothers and sisters, you will get bit. He's also a destroying accuser. We see that in Revelation 12, verses 9 and 11. He's always accusing you that you don't love God. And you're not worthy of God. And you can't do anything for God. And you should get just constantly accusing to the heavenly father that you are not who you say you are but remember jesus is our 
defender, our advocate, our lawyer who says, no, Father, I died for that man. I died for that woman. He's also, we see here, Satan is a lion. Lions devour. The word Satan means adversary. Someone who's constantly looking to go after you, against you. The word devil means the accuser and the slanderer. This is who is constantly walking about and he acts, has access to you wherever you are. He knows your feelings. He knows your tendencies. He knows your habits. He knows your weaknesses. And he forms himself in all kinds of ways and circumstances, even disguising himself as something good in life. To get close enough so you're not watchful, you don't recognize it, and only God can know more than and do more than Him. Therefore, your care, your anxiety must be cast upon on God in these situations. But the devil certainly walks about, but he's finite, he's not infinite, he's limited. He has to get permission as a child of God, permission to do even touch your life. And he can only be in one place or, an, or another time. But he does have demonic associates who wander and wander this world looking for opportunities to take out people who are being used by God to reach the lost. And they have a tremendous influence all over the world in every areas of life. Look at what's going on in our world today. And the darkness and the wrong will be right and right will be wrong. You go, how can that be? It's demonic. This is not some religious statement. It's truth. It's demonic forces that are moving the higher ups of these countries and nations. And going and trying to look to destroy people's lives. So we need to recognize that he could be a great pretender, we see in John 8, 44. And because he's subtle, we must be always on guard because his strategy is to counterfeit whatever God has created. Whatever God does, he'll come in and try to counterfeit that to, to trick you. He would deceive us where if it were not for the word of God, we would be easily deceived. If it wasn't for the Spirit of God that lives within you, that is your helper to help you to understand the Word and apply it to your life, you could be easily deceived. That thinking you're doing God's work. Ask Paul. Paul thought he was doing God's work and he was going and killing Christians. The better we know God's Word the wiser and discerning our spiritual senses will be to detect darkness at work in all of our different relationships. We'll we can sense something's not right. That's dark. That's demonic. That, mm, that, that conversation is not where it needs to be. We must be able to Try the spirits, to test the spirit, to know the truth from false, First John 4, verses 1 through 6 says. We can. God lives, the spirit of God lives. You can sense and you get this conversation. You go, 
Yeah, I just know I'm not going to go down that, that, that alleyway. No, no, no. We're not going to go that direction. We're going to go over this direction. Something doesn't seem jiggy over here. Mm-mm. No touchy. And people ask you, why? Why don't you want to go? Why don't you go over here? What's wrong with hanging out with that person? Why can't we go into that party? Because there's something in your senses are very sensitive and the Spirit of God saying, don't go there because if you go there, it's going to lead you to trouble. Because by association, you will be brought into all of that and you're going down. And that's how Satan works. But like a roaring lion, here's the good news, my brothers and sisters. Here's what you need to celebrate. Okay, that was heavy. I know it's heavy. I'm going to lift this up a little bit. But let me remind you what the scripture says about the lion. For Christians, Satan is a lion, yes, but may only roar. Because he has no fangs. He has no teeth any longer. How do we know that? We know that by Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Jesus, when he went to the cross, he took all the power away, the teeth, out of the lion of Satan. But why is that still fearful for you and I to know that Satan can cause us problems? Let me give you an example. A lion, all he has to do is roar in his deceptive lies and are still potent because it drives you to scatter. The question is, as a sheep, will you scatter to the chief shepherd for protection or are you going to scatter to wherever you frantically can go and wherever you think you're safe and you run right into the prey? See, many times we think of lions when the big roar, you think are the ones with the biggest teeth and the hard, the strongest, and they're the dominant male and, or female is going to be taking over the, 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 the herd or the, what is it for, for lions? Pride? Pride, right? What, what, what a perfect little word. But what you don't know is many times the most loudest of lions are the oldest one that doesn't have the power or the teeth. They're planted in a position so when they roar, you start running the opposite direction and you run right into the younger ones who are ready to chase you down and to take you out. But what does God say and how you deal with that? Do you run? No. Look in verse 9. Resist him. Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. How do you resist when a lion roars, the deceptive lies, the things that are thrown in your head and the fiery darts are coming at you and you don't even know where it's coming. It's coming from all directions. It seems like you're overwhelmed with anxieties and all the fears and all these things. You resist him. You don't run. You keep showing up regardless of how what? Regardless of how you feel, you resist him. Keep coming to him and steadfast in your faith. Your faith of what? Our faith in God and who your relationship is with him. And the secret of spiritual warfare is very simple. Steadfast resistance. 
Do you want to win these battles that are going on? Steadfast resistance. Don't allow the enemy or anyone to scare you away from God or the association and fellowship of God. The biggest trick that the enemy can do is cause you to think not to show up, not to open your Bible, not to pray, not to go to church, not to get around those godly influenced people God's brought in your life. Enemy, anytime someone says, I don't want to be around godly people, I don't want to go to church, I don't want to pray, I don't want to... You are being attacked, my brothers and sisters. Understand that. It's not, it's not hard to understand. But what do you do? You scatter. Let's go to the mountains. We need a spa day. We need to get my nails done, my hair done, my this done. I, I, let's go to the... We need water, that will help me, and let me go... You do everything but stand resistant and stand steadfast and stay in where God needs you to be. And when you go out, that's when the enemy takes you right out. It's not complex, brothers. Not complex, sisters. The emotions will take you and make you scatter. And God says, resist him, stay steadfast, because the scripture urges believers to flee from various evils. Yes. But nowhere does he advise anywhere in the scriptures to flee from the devil. You can't flee from the devil. You can't flee. You can, it doesn't matter what mountaintop experience you go to. It doesn't matter where you go and hide. You can't go into your room and curl up into a ball. You cannot, you can't escape. You're supposed to stay steadfast. The resist, the two Greek Ancient Greek words here is stand and against. So Peter tells us to stand against the devil. Satan can be set running by resisting. By your simple behavior of not running from God and running from the, the support there, he says it will simply drive Satan away. It comes because of the authority that you stand with Jesus. The question is how do you do that practically in your life? Well, because be more prayerful. So when you're being attacked in your mind that says you're nothing, you're good for nothing, and what's, what's value in life, and why I have no hope, and, and no one loves me, and all these attacks, you say, there, no, enough. God, I know you love me. You start talking to him. God, I know you love me. I know that you care for me. I know you'll never leave or forsake me. Because you study the word of God, you know what he says and the promises he has for you and me. Stop pondering on those, those thoughts that are not real. And start focusing on your relationship with God and calling out to him. Bringing your thoughts under captivity and start talking to him about all the promises and his love for you and stop listening to the lies. The second thing you should do is then start praying for other people and saying, God, I know this person has the same challenge I'm having right now. I'm praying for them right now that you would just strengthen them in their lock. I know this is going on. And when you start praying for yourself with him, you start praying for others, the devil realizes he has no foothold on you. And he will leave. He will, he will, you've resisted him. He will flee because he cannot destroy you. And when you start, it causes you to start praying for others. 
and for their salvation and for their walk with God, it even drives Satan even more bonkers. Because now you've, in, you've emboldened you to do the work of God. Emboldening by interceding in prayer for others. And the enemy does not like that at all. That's why we must, as we are going, and it finds that there's these attacks, and it will come after you, and it will drive you. It must drive you to stay steadfast in Christ, like a wolf that drives Christ's sheep near to the chief shepherd. They run to the chief shepherd, runs to Jesus, and Satan will flee. We must take our stand on the word of God. We must refuse to be moved. We see that in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. I'll even read it for you because I think it's that powerful. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the trickery, the the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle, fight against you and I between flesh and blood people. That's not where our fight is. But against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That is who we're fighting against. That's why in verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. You must put on the armor of God every day. If you don't have the armor of God, you're vulnerable to these attacks. Our weapons are the word of God in prayer. We see that in verse 17 and 18 of Ephesians 6. It's our protection. It's a complete armor of God is around us. We can fight these things if you will learn to fight and not flee. We must, my brothers and sisters, stand. A steadfast resistance has to be in your life. Now it's interesting, a word of caution. Never discuss things with Satan. Don't be stupid. And dialogue with Satan. You'll lose. Don't even associate or discuss anything with his associates, the other de demons, or demonic darkness of forces. Nothing, anything representative. Don't have dialogue. Ask Eve. She made that mistake. And we all know the sad consequences. We were born sinners because of that. The second thing is never try to fight Satan in your own way. Do what God shows you in the word. Just be obedient. And you must resist him the way Jesus did. How did Jesus resist the devil in the wilderness, how did he do it? With the word of God. We see that. You can go back and read that, certainly in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Never get the idea that you are the only one going through these battles. Don't let the enemy trick you on that. Because we all face trials. 
here knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Everyone. We all are comforted in the knowing that you're not alone. You're not the only one, never alone in the spiritual warfare that's going on. It is happening to everybody around. Our brothers and sisters in Jesus have fought and are fighting the same battles. But look at one of the trickeries is when you're having something really serious going on in your life, you won't tell anybody. It's a trickery. Don't say anything. Don't bring it to light. Don't ask for prayer. They're not going to understand. They won't have time. Let me, let me tell you, you're being deceived. You must find that trusted person that you can sit there and say, I've got this squirrely thing going on in my head. I need prayer. Bring it to light. Start praying and the, resist them and the, Satan and the demonic forces will flee. We must pray for one another and encourage each other in the Lord. That's why the fellowship, do not forsake the fellowship. That is why it's so important to encourage you through these battles. And Peter ends with a prayer. How appropriate at the end of his letter here. He ends with a prayer here in verse 10 and 11. He says, he ends this positive note. A very positive note after he just told them, Satan's trying to take you out and devour and kill you. Just so you know. Let me, so let's pray about that. But he reminds his leaders here that God knew what he was doing and the fact that he is in complete control. That's what you need to remember this day. He says right here, but may, but a key word, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, established, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever Amen. So right here in this prayer, knowing the suffering and the danger that Christians were going to face because of the persecution, the fiery trials that were coming their way because of their faith in Jesus. Peter can only conduct a prayer. That is the best way is to take them to God and thus talk to God about this because you're going to need to be encouraged. And he asked God to do his work, God's work in what? To perfect you. To establish you, to strengthen you, to settle you down. Now, if you were you and me and I start reading this letter, you're like, Peter, did you have to write that? Really? At the end of this letter, everything was fine. We're learning, okay, we're learning, we're learning. And then you're telling us, what? That you have suffered a while? Like, we're going to be suffering like this is a guarantee and this is a good thing yes it's a good thing because through it you'll be perfected you'll be established you will be strengthened and you will be settled god is doing it to work in your life and then what will happen to him be the glory because through the fact that he's in control, he's going to reveal to everyone around in this world, including the demonic forces, that he's in control and that you are his and his, he is yours. That you have a relationship and God is not going to let go of you and is going to use you for his glory in his perfect timing.
It is not about perfectibility, my brothers and sisters. It's about teachability. I have failed. You have failed. And yes, like Peter who writes this letter and can really tell you, and we know his story, he has failed in every aspect of what he's been teaching. That we learn lessons from our failures and we can speak with authority as he speaks with authority. I have been there, I have done that, but you do not have to make the same mistakes, he says. You don't have to learn from my mistake. You learn from my mistake. You don't have to go make it yourself to learn this. That's just, that's, to me, that's dark. When someone says, oh, well, you have to go make the mistakes on your own because that's how you're going to learn. Very dark when I hear that. No. Learn from other people's mistakes so you don't have to commit those mistakes. There's nothing that says you have to have your own mistakes. You're going to make enough of them on your own. So nothing we're teaching, nothing I'm teaching that I have not suffered and gone through myself that I'm telling you what the scripture says and what I apply in my own life just as I'm trying to encourage you to do. Our salvation is because of God's grace. He called us into this relationship with him. He desires a relationship for those who choose to want that. He made a way for us to have that relationship. We have tasted the Lord and His gracious. His grace is manifold. His grace meets every situation of life. And as we submit to Him, He gives us the grace that we need in every time of need. We see that in Hebrews 4, verse 16. We saw that he gives more grace, James 4, 6, and we stand in that grace in chapter 5, verse 12. We also see it in Romans 5, 2. Do you rely upon God's grace? The way of grace. To him be the glory and dominion. And his conclusion here, at the end of this letter, he's kind of, the benediction here, he says, by Salvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. He sits here, and many, and many people believe that this uh, Salvanus, he's the guy that actually does the scribing for Peter as he was talking. Uh, Salvanus is the ones writing it down. Until this very end, and it appears, Peter picked up the pen, the quill, and finished the letter here. But Salvanus, many believe, is Silas, who was um, uh, with Paul's letters, is, that he wrote uh, down the letters for Paul. But he says Paul summed up his message here about the exhortation to encourage and recognize the, the true grace of God in which you stand in. You and I stand as a, as a believer on the grace of God. Not the law, but on the grace of God. Verse 13 she who is in Babylon, she is believed to be the church who is in Babylon, or he's in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. More than likely, it was John Mark, 
the gospel writer of Mark, that's who's there because he also had a relationship with Barnabas and Paul as well. And, and he became a very trusted support, like a son, a spiritual son to Peter and to Paul and to Barnabas. And we see that many places in the scripture. And verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So Peter concludes with a benediction of peace. He commands to greet and display God's love to one another when you meet them. By pronouncing a blessing of peace upon them. That's what we should be doing is praying for, uh, and, and, and praying for a blessing of peace upon our brothers and sisters we come across. And we see they also had what we refer to as the holy kiss, the kiss of love. We see it four more times in the New Testament where they would greet one another. There's such a love for one another. And it was this... More than likely, it was the holy kiss was on the, on the shoulder because when you hug, you kind of kiss them on the neck because that's how they greeted to show how much love as brothers and sisters they had for each other. Peter's here at the end of the letter. Loves these people so much. As a pastor, he loves them so much. And as a pastor, you don't want to see people suffer. You don't want people struggling. You don't just want them to see them wander and see the, the enemy just take them out, destroy their lives, their marriages, their families, their friends. And so Peter writes this letter to the believers. And the Holy Spirit says to us, submit to God. Completely submit to God. Don't hold back. If you have, first of all, if you haven't even surrendered your life to Jesus and gotten saved, you need to get saved. Because all the promises we're talking about here are for believers and not for non-believers. If you're non-believers, you're already controlled by Satan and demonic forces. You just don't know it. Today's a salvation for you. The Lord spoke to your heart. Surrender your heart and give your heart to Jesus. Cry out and repent and ask God to come into your heart and to forgive you. He paid the penalty for your sins. He's just waiting for you to desire for him and open up your heart to allow him to come into your life and to be born again. And that's a decision that only you can make. But I'm talking now to you believers who have made that decision. Completely be sold out for Jesus. Submit completely, humbly to God in every aspect of your life. Because I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, things in this world are getting darker. Persecution is coming, has come for most, a lot of our brothers and sisters overseas, they're already suffering for their faith. Be ready. For that persecution or be ready for Jesus to come back and rapture us out of here. Amen. That solves all of our problems. But that doesn't solve a problem for all the non-believers who are, need to hear the gospel. You've been equipped. Go out and share the good news with those who have no faith. Amen. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for working in the hearts of all the hearers today, today and the days to come. May we just not forget of your grace and your mercy and your love upon our life as a believer, as a child of God we've been adopted in. 
we have been brought into that security. May we abide in you, stay close to you, and may we desire to hear from you by and through your word. Oh, speak to our hearts, Lord. Speak to your people. Encourage your people. Lift your people up right now and just know that they have rest in you. Bless the time of our service and fellowship, Lord, and use the spiritual gifts to encourage one another in the faith. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen.